When I got older, I thought I'd have it all figured out. But I had no idea how far away I was. I would drink a lot to distract myself and just pretend like I was all right. When I was growing up, all I wanted was my father's attention, and he wasn't around. I blamed myself for never being good enough for him, and then for my husband, too. When I look back on my life, I used to be filled with regret. I was selfish and inconsiderate, and I cared so little for the people that cared for me most. When I lost my job, I felt like I was going to lose everything. I felt like a failure. No matter how hard I tried to fix it, I was the one who needed the most repair. After what I did, I felt so ashamed. I hated myself. I felt like I had gone too far to ever come back again. When I used to think about death, I was terrified. I thought that I could hold on to my friends or my boyfriend or my career, but they weren't enough. Then, I found Jesus. And then, I discovered someone who loves me. Then a friend invited me to church. It took something drastic for me to surrender myself to my Savior. One Sunday morning, I decided to go. But my sin wasn't too much for God. I'm a new creation. Now I'm brand new. Now I have support. Now I'm worth something. Now I'm changed. Now I'm taken care of. Now I'm really living. How many of you would say that you have problems, stresses, pain, suffering, or sadness? Any of those things? Let me see your hands. All right. This message is for you. Uh, what we generally do is we ask God to remove all of those things. We ask God to change our circumstances. And rarely does God answer that um, prayer request right then. It's not that God doesn't care about your circumstances. He cares a great deal. But God is more interested in changing your mind before he changes your circumstances. The theme verse for this whole series is Romans 12, 2, which says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Nothing eternal happens until you begin to renew your mind. So there's this huge battle for your soul and it's going on in your mind and we need to figure out how to control our mind. So let's look at some things very quickly about that. First thing, why I must win this battle. My thoughts control my life. Every action begins as a thought. If you don't think it, you don't do it. That's both good and bad. If you think a good thought, then you're going to do something good. If you think a bad thought, you're going to do something bad. Proverbs 4.23 says it this way. Be careful what you think because your thoughts do what? Your thoughts do what? Run your life. Now, if somebody told you when you were a kid that you're worthless and you believed that, that has shaped your life up to this time. The the thoughts that go on in your mind don't even have to be true. Somebody may have told you you're ugly or you're slow or you're uncoordinated, whatever it is. If you believe those things, even though they're not true, they shape your life up to this point. Now, there's a lot of feelings associated with that stuff. Next week, we're going to look at emotional healing. We're going to talk about feelings, but feelings don't run your life. Your thoughts do. 
Doesn't even have to be true. If you believe it, it's going to shape your life. And, and a lot of the things that you were taught as a kid are flat out lies. And you're, you're living your life today based on false information that somebody said about you or, or taught you. Second reason we need to get this battle figured out in our minds is because it literally is the battleground for sin. We think temptation is out there somewhere. Something outside of us is, is exerting influence on us. And we'll say we are being tempted by those things outside. But, but if there wasn't a corresponding desire inside of you, it wouldn't be tempting. For example, how many of you think that Hobby Lobby coming to Palestine is one of the greatest things on the face of the earth? Right? I've been to Hobby Lobby once in my life and that was enough. I walked in there with Janie because I love my wife. And the only reason I will ever go in there now is if I think she's passed out somewhere, you know, and, and I will go and, and revive her and bring her out because there's not anything. I, I'm glad that it's a Christian company. I love how they pay their employees. There's just nothing in it. There's no temptation. When I drive by, I've not even thought about walking in the door of Hobby Lobby. It's the same thing with Sam Moon. What? Well, one time I took Janie. This was several years ago for her birthday. I had this whole weekend planned. We went to Dallas, stayed in a hotel, and I said, you can go wherever you want to go. And she said, let's go to Sam Moon. And I said, okay, baby, this is all about you. I went into Sam Moon. I walked around about two or three minutes, and I said, there's nothing in here I will ever need. And I asked Janie if I could go fall asleep in the car, and she said, yes, because then I got more time. And so I did. I went and slept in the car while she shopped. There's no reason for me to ever, ever go, unless Janie passes out or unless one of my daughters pass out, I'll go revive them. Now, Here's the cool thing, though, that we've discovered. Now my girls know that in Arlington, we go to Arlington, we got some great friends there. We were at the church there for several years, and, and we spend the night at our friend's house every time we go through, no matter what's going on. We love these friends. They have a room that's just ready for us. And now they'll say, Dad, let's go to Sam Moon, because they know that the, the first time that I dropped them off at the door, I looked in my rearview mirror, and I could see an In-N-Out burger. And I said, there's temptation. And then the other thing I noticed was at the other end of the strip mall, there was Academy Sports and Outdoors. And I said, Jesus, thank you. Because I got food and I've got distraction. I can, those things tempt me. You understand? If, if there's not a desire within you, you're never tempted. Temptation happens in the mind. You win or lose the battle in the mind. You actually commit sin in your mind before you ever do it physically. So you've got to understand that. When we talk about pride, lust, bitterness, hatred, anger, fear, resentment, envy, worry, where are those things? In here. They're in your mind. Thank you, Travis. He's been here for the early service and he's helping you out. If you can learn how to manage your mind, you actually learn how to manage your life. Now, one of the most famous passages about this idea that we do things we don't want to do is from Romans chapter seven. Paul is talking and here's what he says. This is a living Bible translation. I love to do God's will so far as my new nature is concerned, but there's always a big but. And by the way, this one's spelled with one T. I didn't cuss. I love to do God's will so far as my mind is concerned, but there's something else deep within me that is at war with my mind and wins the fight and makes me a slave to the sin within me. In my mind, I want to be God's servant, but instead I find myself still enslaved to sin. So what he's telling us is there is a battle 24-7. Your mind is your greatest asset. Satan wants to control your mind, so he's going to bombard you to soften you up. Why? Because Satan knows if he can get your mind, he can get your body. He knows it's just a matter of time. If he can get you to commit sin in your mind, he will get you to commit sin with your body. Now, the third reason, if you have stress, and we talked about that a lot last week, if you have stress, this third reason is for you. 
Because this battle in our mind, it's the key to peace and contentment. Think about this. An unmanaged mind leads to stress, pressure, tension. A managed mind leads to peace. An unmanaged mind leads to conflict. A managed mind leads to confidence. An unmanaged mind leads to stress, but a managed mind leads to strength and security. Now look at what Paul says in Romans 8, 6. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. There's three types of death. There's, there's spiritual death, which is separation from God. If you're not in God's family, there is physical death, which is separation from your body. And then there's eternal death, which is damnation, which is hell being apart from God. He's saying that if you let your mind, your, your, your flesh control your mind, that's death. It's the opposite of what God has designed for you. But look, but, but letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. No one can control your mind. Satan would love to, but he doesn't have enough power. He can just make suggestions and you and I willingly latch onto those suggestions and then we give in to sin. God has the power to control your mind, but God's not going to control your mind. And in fact, if you're thinking um, lonely thoughts, discouraged thoughts, depressed thoughts, guilty thoughts, if you're thinking any kind of thoughts like that, it doesn't even do any good for you to pray, dear God, change my thoughts because God's going to say it's your mind, you change it. It's, it's like a channel. Your mind is very highly controllable. Let me give you an example. Travis, put that number up on the screen, please. What number is that? I'm so grateful that all the school districts around here were able to uh, implant that in your mind. It's the number nine. Now, everybody just do an air nine. Right where you are, just in the air, draw a nine. Now, share with somebody next to you, right in their face, do an air nine. All right. Now, everybody look up here. <clears throat> think of the number nine. What are you thinking of? Nine. All right. Some of you, yeah, some of you been here before, you know this. All right. Now let's go through this process. I want you to think of the number 1600 divided by two. What do you get? 800. Wait till I ask the question. He's in the early service. He's answering all of my stuff. That's good. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Now you get 800. Now you divide 800 by two. What do you get? 400. If you multiply 400 by three, what do you get? In that process, did you ever think of the number nine? No, you didn't. Now, unless, well, there we are. We got guys that were here again. I, I'm going to have to change my illustrations from one sermon to the next for these guys. Uh, I, I'm on to you now. Here, the, the idea is substituting something else. See, if I'm saying, don't think of the number nine, think of the number nine, think of the number nine, and I'm drawing nines and I'm flashing nines everywhere. That's what Satan does. He bombards you because he wants you to think about those things. But you've got to learn to substitute something else so that you're not focusing on what Satan wants you to do. So we're going to talk about that substitution. If you want a healthy mind, which means you get rid of all the destructive stuff in your mind, you've got to make some choices over and over every day, three choices. First one is feed my mind with truth. Feed my mind with truth. This is the idea of substituting truth for the trash that you have in your mind. If you eat good food, good calories, that tends to give you good energy, makes you feel better. If you eat bad food, bad calories, junk food, that tends to make you feel bad and actually can make you sick eventually. It's the same thing with your mind. If you feed your mind with truth, God's going to set you free. If you feed your mind with trash, then you're going to be in bondage to what Satan has. Now, in the Old Testament... Um, it's in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, Moses is kind of summing up some stuff because he's about to um, not get to go in the promised land. He disobeyed God. God said, you're not going to the promised land. I'll let you see it. But he's summarizing what happened. They didn't understand what God had done when they were wandering in the wilderness. And look what he says to them in verse three. <clears throat> 
He, talking about God, humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and to your ancestors. Now, when they complained in the in the wilderness, they wandered for 40 years, they complained, we don't have any food. There were about a million men, there, there were probably a million women, a million children, so about three million folks. They said, we don't have any food, let us go back to Egypt, let us die in slavery. And so God provides this thing called manna. Manna literally means, what is it? Because they saw this little wafer-like substance that would appear on the ground every morning, they go, what is it? The name stuck. All right. So they had manna. Can you imagine? They had manna for 40 years. Every day they had manna. And scripture actually says that they tried every which way to disguise it. They made banana bread. They made manicotti. Um, they, they really, can you imagine having the same food three meals in a row? Now I, I like leftovers. Janie's a great cook. But, but once is, you know, I have some leftovers. I don't want to do it three or four meals in a row. 40 years you're eating. What is it? (laughs) Look why Moses tells him why he did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God was teaching them a lesson. Yes, food can sustain you, but food is not going to do you any good in the next life. Spiritually, you need the every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. After Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness. If you're in the wilderness today, there's two reasons to be in the wilderness. One is you've turned your back on God. You are off the path that God has for you. You've chosen to be in the wilderness or the Holy Spirit's led you there. If you've chosen to be in the wilderness, the way you get back is you repent and you say, God, I've, please forgive me and bring me back. If the Holy Spirit led you to the wilderness, you need to say, God, what do you want to teach me out here in the wilderness? Now, Jesus fasted for 40 days. Didn't have any food for 40 days. Do you think you'd be hungry if you didn't eat food for 40 days? I fasted one time for seven days and I ate everything, couches, sun tables, you know, whatever it was. I was so hungry and actually I got really, really sick because I started gouging myself with food and I threw up and had all kinds of issues. I, I learned that when you come off of a fast, don't eat a lot of food. You need to take that very gently. So the first temptation that we're told about in Matthew is that Satan said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, do you think Jesus was hungry? 40 days, of course he's hungry. We go 40 minutes and we're hungry. What Satan was trying to do was get Jesus to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Because if he had turned stones into bread, Jesus didn't argue with him about, is it okay for me to eat? (laughs) Jesus just quoted the word of God. And and specifically, he quoted what I just read you from from Deuteronomy 8.3. And he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus modeled for us how we're supposed to handle temptation. We have God's word so much in our mind that we quote it. It's an offensive weapon. In fact, it's the only offensive weapon that we have. When you put on the, the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the, and the breastplate of righteousness, the only offensive weapon is the word of God. Jesus used that. So you've got to feed your mind daily with the word of God. How many, how many meals do you eat during a typical day? Four, three, six. You're the one that said six earlier. We got seven. Yeah, it's like we're trying to top each other. Do I hear eight? Do I hear eight? It's going once. Now, what if, regardless of how many meals you had per day, what if you fed from the word of God that many times? If you're a three meal a day, what if you read God's word? And, and I'm not talking about chapters and chapters. What if you had, like Romans 12 too, 
Do not be conformed anymore to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to prove, approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What if you had that and you just went over and over your mind? Do you think that would change the way you think? Would it change the way you act and react to other people if you were feeding on God's word? Of course. Jesus is talking to some Jews, and here's what he says in John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, that's key, if you continue to obey my teaching, you are truly my followers. So the idea is if you don't continue to obey my teaching, you're not really truly my followers. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. How do you get freedom in your thinking? You obey and continue to obey Jesus. His teachings, what teachings? All of them. Did you know there are 7,000, over 7,000 promises in the Bible? And you need to begin to learn and memorize these things so that you can dwell on them. In fact, if you have something in your life that you're stressed about, it means you've not spent enough time in God's promises. I don't care what area it is. There's a promise of God for every situation that you're ever going to face. You need to discover that promise and, and remind yourself over and over again. Look what David says in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's got the most verses in the Bible. Look what he says. I rise early before the sun is up. I cry out for help and put my hope in your words. I stay awake through the night thinking about your promises. Verse 97. Oh, how I love your instructions. I think about them all day long. So when does David think about the promises of God? All day, every day, morning, noon, and night. And check this out. Last week, if you were here, I told you that, that David was anointed king. He, it was done in secret, so nobody but his family knew about that. And then Saul gets jealous of David. Saul is the king, and he chases him around literally for years. He's hiding in caves because Saul wants to kill him. All right? Look what David says in, in verse 95 of Psalm, one, Psalm 119. Though the wicked hide along the way to kill me, I will quietly keep my mind on your laws. If someone breaks in your house and you're thinking you're going to die, is the word of God the first thing that comes to your mind? No. no. It's where's my gun? Mine's in DFW. Airport. Police. <laughs> but by, by the way, as of Friday, I'm no longer a criminal. My case was dismissed. Praise you, Jesus. I had to take an extra um, online handgun safety course because obviously I don't, I don't know how to handle handguns at the airport. But praise the Lord, I'm no longer a criminal. Yes. <laughs> if, if your life is on the line and, and you think the word of God, you must be a man or a woman after God's own heart because that's what David was. We've got to train our minds to think on these things. Your survival in the kingdom of God depends on you constantly feeding from the word of God. So I want you to say this. My survival depends on me constantly feeding on the word of God. Your thriving in the kingdom of God depends on you constantly feeding on the word of God. If you want the abundant life, Jesus said, I've come that you might have abundant life. You've got to put God's word in your mind and dwell on that. Second reason, if I, if I want a healthy mind, second thing I need to do is free my mind from destructive thoughts. You're a prisoner of your own, of your own thoughts. Did you know that? And, and I want to give you permission not to believe everything you think. We think, oh, if I get a thought, it must be true. For example, if, if, if I think Aaron's mad at me and Aaron walks in and stubs his toe on the little threshold back there and he has a mean look on his face and he looks at me next and I go, see, he's mad at me, right? You find evidence to support whatever theory that, that you come up with. <laughs> um, just because you think it doesn't mean it's true. It's like on the internet. Is, is anything on the internet not true? Is everything you read true? 
There are actually, yeah, sure. There are actually websites, and and I've I've read some stories about this. You can you can figure out which websites if you look, like on Facebook, it'll tell you which website. And I don't even go and read um, websites that that I know are frauds. I don't even bother. No matter what the headline is, I don't care what the headline is. I'm going to look at the source. And and did you know? Did you know? I've got several sources. Did you know that Fox News even is wrong sometimes? Occasionally, not not often, not often. I read Fox News. I read lots of stuff, but you got to be very careful what you read and what you believe. And did you know that that probably the majority of what you think is not true? Did you know that? Just because you get a thought in your mind, it could come from your sin nature. It could come from Satan. Doesn't matter where it comes from. If it's not true, it's not true. You don't have to believe everything you think. And if you can grasp this idea, I don't have to believe every thought that comes into my mind. You're well on your way to mental health. One of the most destructive things we think is that someone who's done us wrong doesn't deserve forgiveness. You ever done that one? I'm not forgiving them because they don't deserve it. Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. Did Jesus die on the cross because you deserved the blood of Christ? Did Jesus forgive you before or after you ask for forgiveness from sins? Before, thank you. In the early service, somebody said, after. I said, no. That thought was wrong. (laughs) Scripture says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if God offers forgiveness to me and Jesus Christ is my model, in fact, in Ephesians 4.32... It says, be kind and compassionate with one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God has forgiven you. So if you, if you do something to me, I'm supposed to forgive you whether you ever ask for it or not, because forgiveness has to do with my mental and spiritual health, not with whether the person deserves it. If you're not healthy there, that it could be because you have unforgiveness in your heart. Now, um, in, in the New Testament, Paul has written two letters to the church at Corinth, two that we have. There's evidently a lost one, but, but he, he refers that in the, in the second um, letter. But here's the, here's the thing. God has preserved what he wants us to know. In the first Corinthians, he was writing about a whole bunch of stuff. This was an incredible church, had every spiritual gift that, that there is, but they were messed up. In fact, they were allowing sin in the church so blatant that outsiders were hearing about it and they were, it was hurting the name of Christ. And Paul says you need to confront the guy and, and church discipline says this. You go to somebody who, who offends you. You don't go to the pastor. You don't go to your best friend to try to get them on your side. If you want to be like Christ, if you want to be like the scripture says, you go to the person who offends you. If that doesn't work, then the next thing is you're supposed to take two or three witnesses. If that doesn't work, you bring it to the church. If they still don't repent, the Bible says that you actually do church discipline, you kick them out of the church. We've had to do that before. It's not something we take lightly, but we believe God blessed that. Um, <laughs> started thinking about that and I, and I got off. So the, what was going on was this man had, had committed sin. He said, kick him out of the church. So they did. In second Corinthians, Paul says, the man has changed his life. He's repented and you need to forgive him. They did, and then look what he says in 2 Corinthians 2.10. Paul says, when you forgive this man, I forgive him also. Why? So that Satan will not outsmart us. Satan has schemes. He's saying Satan wants to get into our lives, into our churches. We forgive because it's what God tells us to do. Satan wants us bitter. He wants us in bondage to our past. 
And if, if you don't forgive someone, you're in Satan's trap. He has a stronghold, a foothold in your life. And he doesn't even have to really work at getting you upset because you're not forgiving. He just stirs it up a little bit more. Most of us are losing the battle in our minds because we've got trash in our minds, not truth. How can we win the battle? Well, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 tells us. We fight with weapons that are different from those the world uses. Our weapons have power from God that can destroy the enemy's strong places. Say that, strong places. Strong places. We destroy people's arguments and every proud thing that raises itself against the knowledge of God. Here are the two big things. We capture every thought. We make it obey Make it give up and obey Christ. So a stronghold is a lie that I believe. A spiritual stronghold is a lie that I believe. So the lie might be, God doesn't really love me. That's a lie. The lie might be, I know better than God what will make me happy. That is, that is a lie. The lie might be, my life is worthless. That's a lie from hell. Could be, no one loves me. That's a lie from hell. Could be, I can't be used because of my past. That's a lie from hell. People around here have, have had unbelievable transformations and God uses them in spite of their past. Actually, he uses their past and he says, look how I've cleaned this light up, life up and somebody else comes to Christ because of your past and God has delivered you from it. Anything I believe that's a lie is called a spiritual stronghold and strongholds need to be destroyed. How? Well, scripture tells us we capture every thought that comes from the Greek phrase akmalotizo, which actually means to conquer. It's like you conquer a nation, but it's not enough to conquer a nation. The second phrase is make it give up and obey Christ. That comes from the, the Greek phrase hupakoe, which literally means bring into submission. I conquer my mind and I make it submit to Christ. Now, true confession time. Do your thoughts ever disobey you? Does your mind ever rebel? Yeah, sometimes my mind has a mind of its own. When I'm preparing for a Sunday, I write my sermons out. I put them on paper on Thursday, and then I do all the slides, and I get all that ready before I leave, and we make the listening guides and all that stuff. On Saturdays, I spend a lot of time studying because I want to know this material in a way that I can present it. Well, yesterday, I was studying, and, and you know what my mind wanted? College football was on. Baylor homecoming. I'm a Baylor graduate. Baylor's rated number two for the first time in history. It's not going to last. But they're there now, and so we're celebrating Baylor. Right, Mark? Mark graduated from Baylor, too. We're celebrating, and, and we're not celebrating that the quarterback got hurt, but, but anyway, that's another story for another day. Well, so while I'm studying, my mind doesn't want to study. Here's what I thought. One of my favorite places to eat is Schlotzky's, and I start thinking of this sandwich I get an original with no onions that's got ham and it's got um, salami and it's got black olives and it's got mustard and lettuce and tomatoes, no onions, because I don't, I don't really dig onions unless they're cooked and then I dig them. And I'm thinking, I want schlock. And look at that sourdough bread. That's some cool stuff. And so I'm sitting there with my going Schlotzky's. We used to have one and y'all didn't support it. I did. It's not my fault that it went out of business. And then you know what I get when I get the meal at Schlotzky's? You know what I get with it? Jalapeno chips. Dude, they're so good. And I'm thinking Schlotzky's and chips and Baylor on TV. And then I thought, dude, the best thing I could wash that down with, (laughs) the best thing I could do is have some Bluebell. And I still, I have a shirt that says I survived the bluebell famine of 2015. I haven't worn it except once because technically I haven't survived because I've not had bluebell since before all this happens. And I'm thinking, man, I need some bluebell. Every night I, I think I need bluebell. 
Because I, I, I love Bluebell. Anybody hungry yet? You know what I'm doing? I'm messing with your head. And that whole time you didn't think about Jesus at all, did you? It's what Satan does. He bombards you until you get your mind off of Christ and you put it on something else. You have a choice. Your mind has to listen to you. God gave you a mind. He gave you emotions. He gave you a will. We're talking about emotions next week and emotional health, feelings, all of that stuff. But, but part of your will is you have the ability to control what's on your, on your mind. Change the channel. It is possible to do that. The reason a lot of people are discouraged in life, they don't like their life, is because they're allowing Satan to win the battle for their mind. Let me give you real quickly how temptation works, because you need to understand this. The first step of temptation is desire. Temptation takes a routine desire and turns it into a runaway desire. It becomes something that consumes you. It's all you think about. You have to get that filled. It can be a legitimate desire. And, and what I tell people all the time is fire in a fireplace is good. Fire in the rest of your house is bad. Right? You ever seen some of the, the embers pop out, you know, or you, you got a fire pit and some stuff pops out and that, that's bad. That's a bad thing. Fire in the fireplace or fire on a stove. My mom had a gas stove when I was growing up and, and our kitchen was way away from the rest of the house and, and she used to turn on one of the burners to keep the kitchen warm. And when I was about six years old, I learned that fire's bad outside there because I started lighting uh, little toothpicks and it was the coolest thing. I would light it on fire and then I'd blow it out. And I realized the more I blew on it, the redder the tip of it got. And then we'd come down close and I'm like, oh, I'm not going to get burned. So I threw it in the trash can. I did it about 10 times. And then I go start watching TV. My brother goes, dude, the kitchen's on fire. Smoke is just billowing out of the kitchen. And, and I learned a very painful lesson that night. That you, the fire in the trash can's bad. What Satan does is he takes a legitimate need and he convinces you to meet it in an illegitimate way. Sex inside of marriage is a great thing. Sex outside of marriage will burn your house down. Any desire that's from God that's created within us, Satan wants you to meet that in an illegitimate way so that he has you hooked. So the first thing is he wants you to have this desire that's out of control. Second thing is it moves from desire to doubt. You doubt that God loves you. You doubt that God knows best because when you're tempted, what does Satan say? He says, did God really say not to have sex outside of marriage? Did God really say that homosexuality is a sin? Did God really say that I'm supposed to forgive a person and not get even with them? Did God really say it's more blessed to give than to receive? Yes, but Satan whispers that and you begin to doubt. Adam and Eve were in the perfect environment. They were naked and had no clothes. That's perfect, John. They had no children. That was perfect. How do you mess that up? Satan comes along and he says, did God really say that you can't eat from that tree? Did he really say that? And, and you know, God said, you can eat from any tree in the garden and where's man hanging out at the one tree you can't have. And he tried to blame Eve, but, but you know what it says? When Eve saw the fruit, she was looking at it. It looked good for food. And Satan said, we'll be like God. So she takes it and she eats. And then the scripture says she turns and hands it to the husband who was with her. 
They were hanging out at the one place that they couldn't be, they couldn't have. Go enjoy everything else. Quit focusing on what you can't have. Satan gets you to doubt that God loves you and his rules are for your best. So you desire, then you doubt, and then, then comes the deception. Satan changes, he replaces God's truth with a lie. Satan says, you will not die. What did God told Adam? If you eat of this tree, tree you will die. Satan says, you won't die, you'll be smart like God. And you begin to believe the deception, you latch on to the deception. Do you know what the secret is to being a good fisherman? Having the right bait. Like when, when I'm fishing and if I'm in a boat or if I'm fishing with somebody and my rule is if they catch two or three and I'm at zero, whatever they're using, I'm going to use. And if they're running the trolling motor, you know, and they're kind of hopping the holes before you, cause that's what the trolling motor guys tend to do. I'm going to cast where they are cause I'm trying to catch fish. One time I was with one of my best friends and, and he, uh, I, I caught no lie four times. I had this big honking worm on and I chunked out and I caught four bass, big bass right in a row. And he goes, dude, give me whatever you're fishing with. Cause he would ch- chunk at the same time. His bait sucked. Mine was good. He said, I need, I need what you're fishing with. See, this is not a hard concept. Do you know what, what bait Satan uses to tempt you and, and cause you to fall and be destroyed? Whatever it is, it works. Your desire. But, but see, it's, it's your desire. He uses on me whatever my desire is. It's whatever works. He goes back to it over and over again because we fall for it over and over again. It could have been something that somebody said to you a long time ago and all they have to do is say it once again and you're depressed or you're angry or you're unforgiving and Satan's got you. You're being deceived and there's a hook. There's always a hook. It's like, it's like somebody who's married or, or somebody who's at work and they're flirting with somebody who's married. That's stupid. That's so stupid. It's two syllables. Stupid. Oh, we're adults. No one's getting hurt. Oh my gosh. Come tell me that you're flirting with a married person. I will smack you in the name of Jesus till you don't look good enough for them to even look at you anymore, right? Because there's a hook. Satan hides the hook, and it's called self-deception because we know it's there, but we keep nibbling until Satan sets the hook, and he goes, got you again. So there's the desire. There's, there's the deception, there's defeat. When you, when you disobey God and, and you're defeated, Satan smiles and he puts away the lure for the next time until he wants to discredit your walk with Christ again. He pulls it out again because you're going to fall for it. We move from desire. It's something I want. could be a le- legitimate desire. We move to doubt. Does God really love me? Does God's word really say this? We move to uh, deception. Satan telling me a lie. It's okay. Just this once. Nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to get hurt. To we are defeated. Because we bought the lie. Write this down. What I flirt with, I will fall for. What I flirt with, I will fall for. It could be a cupcake. If you flirt with it, you'll fall for it. It could be bluebell. Or a sandwich. Thank you. Travis is going through all of them. Thank you for tempting us. Oh, man of God on the computer. Don't mind that guy on the computer. Don't pay any attention to him. The moment you make the choice, you're no longer free because you're free to choose anything you want to in the world, but you you are not free to make that choice apart from the consequences. You reap what you sow. When you make that choice, you choose the consequences that come into your life. James says this, James 1, 14 and 15, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. When sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Death is the opposite of living. 
So the best time to win the battle is before, before you ever, before, before temptation ever happens, you decide what you're going to do and you stick with it. So to have a healthy mind, feed my mind with truth, free my mind from destructive thoughts, and last is focus my mind on right things. What are the right things? I'm going to give you three things that you focus your mind on to overcome temptation. Number one is Jesus. If you think about Jesus, who are you going to become like? Jesus. If you think like the devil, who are you going to become like? The devil. Hebrews 12.3 says, think about Jesus' example. He held on while wicked people were doing evil things to him. So do not get tired and stop trying. You are struggling against sin, but your struggles have not yet caused you to be killed. A lot of people come in, they say, oh, my struggles are the worst struggles in the history of struggling. Are you hanging on a cross with, with nails through your wrists and through your feet? Have you been beaten within an inch of your life with a cat of nine tails? Have you had your religious enemies beat you in the face, blindfold you and say, if you're a prophet, tell us who's hitting you, spit on you, and then run a spear through your side? Is that really how bad your struggle is? Scripture says, think about Jesus, hang on because he didn't give up. The reason he didn't give up is because he saw heaven. Second thing, you think about Jesus, second thing, you think about others. Do not be interested only in your own life, but be interested in the lives of others. How many of you heard this phrase, I've got to do what's best for me? Some of you have said it. Thanks, Travis heard it again. Some of you said it over and over again. Here's the deal. You read scripture. Nowhere in scripture does it say you need to do what's best for you. The life you've been given, if you follow Jesus Christ, the life you've been given is all about Jesus and others. A mature Christian will always make their decisions based on what, what God wants me to do in how I can help others. If I have a choice between my fulfilling my desires and your desires, I'm supposed to do something that serves you. Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served, and to give my life a ransom for many. So it's real easy to find out if, how, how devoted to Christ you are. Are you serving someone other than yourself? Are you giving? Is your life being poured out for others? You know, when we take the Lord's Supper, a lot of people call that Eucharist. Eucharist means something has been broken. Something has, somebody has to be broken for you to receive something. When we take the Lord's Supper, his body was broken, his blood was spilled so that you and I might have life. Every week, whether you're sitting in here or whether your children are back there, somebody has to be broken and poured out so that you might receive the life from God. Hebrews 10, 24 says, let us think about each other and help each other to show love and good deeds. You can't do that if you're not in a small group. The way you show people is you get involved in a small, small group and then you can do that verse. Another translation said, let us spur one another on towards love and good deeds. You can't be spurred and you can't spur anyone if all you do is sit and soak up in a worship service on Sunday mornings. So give that verse a try in your small group this week. Third thing we're supposed to think about is heaven. Let heaven fill your thoughts. Don't spend your time worrying about things down here. Years ago, I was in Arlington. I was youth minister, and we needed a, an associate youth minister. Church was growing. Youth group was growing. We took 180 kids to youth camp, and so I needed an assistant. And so I was taking applications, found one, and I, and I called this guy who was a youth minister at a church much bigger than my church. He had a, an intern for every grade, a male and female in, intern for seventh grade, eighth grade, all the way through high school, even had some college interns, um, massive youth group. And I called him up, and I said, hey, tell me about this guy. And he goes, well, let me tell you, he said, the guy, 
the guy's too spiritual. He said, he just wants to pray about everything. I said, really? That's, he goes, I'm just going to tell you, he's so earthly, he's so heavenly minded, he's not any earthly good. I said, I'm going to hire him. He's one of my best friends to this day. I was shocked that this, this guy who was in ministry thought that someone could think too much about heaven. He prays about everything. I want that kind of guy in my life. I want him in this church. The people who've, who've done the most good on this earth are the most heavenly minded. That is not a criticism that should be a prerequisite for staff membership on a ch- in a church. Oh, my goodness. Fixing your eyes on heaven changes the way you see things on earth. I want you to bow your heads real quickly. I'm going to pray a prayer out loud, and I want to challenge you to pray this silently right where you are. Dear God, help me to put into practice what I've just heard. Help me to feed my mind with truth. Help me to free my mind from destructive thoughts. Help me to focus my mind on the right things. God, help me to capture every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Help me to think about the right things, God, so that you can transform my mind. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.